Section 10 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 7, verses 1 to 25. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth, but if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband be dead, she is freed from the law, so that she is no adulteress, although she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God." although he had given a sufficient but brief solution to the question concerning the abrogation of the law yet on account of its difficulty and many other questions which might arise from its discussion he considers more at length in what way the law is abrogated with respect to us he then shows the great good arising to believers from its abrogation for while we are held bound to the demands of the law out of christ it can only condemn us he next considers and refutes the objections of the flesh to prevent any one from bringing accusations against the law itself where he treats in a remarkable passage with great elegance concerning the use of the law know ye not brethren as a general proposition it is laid down by paul that the law is made with no other design and for no other end than to regulate our conduct during the present life it has no place and authority among the dead. And to this position he afterwards subjoins the hypothesis that we are dead to the law in the body of Christ. Others understand the power of the law for restraining us to remain while its use is in force. But since this view of the passage is not so plain nor so well adapted to the hypothesis which immediately follows, I prefer the sentiments of those who confine the expressions to the life of man and not to the continuance of the law. By proposing the question, he increases the energy with which he asserts the certainty of his statement, for he shows it to be neither new nor unknown, but acknowledged equally by all. For I speak to them that know the law. This parenthesis must be referred to the same subject with the proposition, as if the apostle had said, I know assuredly your acquaintance with the law to be such as leaves no doubt on your minds relative to the point under consideration and though both the proposition and parenthesis might be applied generally to all laws at the same time, yet it is better to confine the subject, now discussed, to the law of God. It is childish to imagine with some that the knowledge of law is applied to the Romans, because a great part of the world was subject to their empire and laws, for Paul partly addresses the Jews or other strangers, partly the common people, and men in obscure stations he chiefly regards the jews in discussing the question relative to the abrogation of the law to prevent every appearance of his treating the subject in a captious manner he shows that he assumes a vulgar and well-known principle which must be certainly known to all those who had been educated from their childhood in the doctrine of the law for the woman is bound to her husband he adduces this similitude for the purpose of proving us to be so freed from the law that it retains properly and by its own right no more power over us and although he could have proved his proposition by other arguments yet as the example of marriage was well suited for the illustration of his subject he introduced the comparison taken from matrimony for the purpose of confirming his statement to prevent any reader from feeling perplexed because the members of the sentence which are compared with each other do not correspond we must remark that the apostle designedly intended to remove the displeasure which the adoption of too harsh an expression might produce by a trifling inversion the apostle had he strictly observed the order of the comparison would have said the woman after the death of her husband is freed from the bond of marriage the law which with respect to us is in the state and condition of a husband is dead to us therefore we are delivered from its power had the apostle said that the law was dead he might have offended the jews by the harshness of his language which he alters a little and uses the expression we are dead to the law some commentators consider paul to argue from the less to the greater but as i fear this interpretation may appear too forced i give a preference to the former on account of its simplicity the order of the argument is as follows a woman is subject by the law to her husband as long as he lives so that she cannot take another 
after his death she is delivered from the bond of the law and can freely marry any husband she chooses the comparison is thus applied by paul the law was in the place of a husband by whose yoke we were bound until it became dead to us after the death of the law christ took us delivered us from the law and joined us to himself we therefore being married to christ who is raised from the dead ought to cling to him alone and as the life of christ is eternal after his resurrection we shall never be divorced any more from our saviour the word law is taken in various senses sometimes it means the mutual law of marriage on other occasions the power of a husband to whom the wife is subject in some passages the doctrine of moses we must keep in mind that paul alludes here only to such part of the law as peculiarly belong to the ministry of moses for we must never dream of the abrogation of the law with respect to the ten commandments in which god has taught us our duty and appointed us a rule for the conduct of our lives because the will of god ought to continue and flourish for ever let us therefore carefully remember this is not a release from the righteousness taught in the law but from its rigorous demand and the curse which follows the strictness of its sentence the rule of a good life therefore prescribed by the law is not abrogated but that quality which is opposed to the liberty purchased by christ and demands the utmost perfection and because we do not attain it binds us under the guilt of eternal death the apostle not being desirous to state the causes on account of which a woman is delivered from the power and authority of her husband had no wish to determine the law of matrimony it would therefore be vain to seek here for any certain doctrine on this subject by the body of christ christ in the first place triumphed over sin by erecting the standard of his cross and for this purpose it was necessary that the handwriting by which we were bound should be torn in pieces the law is that handwriting whose force when exerted makes us debtors to sin and it is therefore called the power of sin by the abrogation therefore of this handwriting we are delivered from the law by the body of christ when it was fixed to the cross but the apostle goes farther and states the bond of the law to have been broken not that we might live according to our own will as the widow while she lives unmarried is subject only to her own authority but we have now been bound to another husband nay we have passed from one hand to another from the law to christ he also mitigates the severity of the sentence when he says that christ has delivered us from the yoke of the law for the purpose of engrafting us into his own body for although christ voluntarily subjected himself for a time to the law yet it is not right that the law should have dominion over him he also communicates the liberty which is peculiar to himself to his own members we need not therefore be surprised if he exempts the pious from the yoke of the law whom he joins to himself by a sacred tie that they may be one body with him to him who is raised from the dead we have already said that christ is substituted in the place of the law nor can liberty be conceived to exist out of him nor dare any one effect a divorce from the law who is not already dead to himself paul uses this circumlocution to point out that eternal life which christ attained by the resurrection that his followers may thus know the endless duration of his union with them paul speaks more clearly in the sixth chapter of the ephesians concerning the spiritual marriage of christ with his church that we should bring forth fruit unto god paul always adds the final clause that no believer might take this as a pretext for licentiousness by indulging his flesh or its desires and lusts because christ has emancipated us from the slavery of the law for he hath offered us with himself a sacrifice to his father and regenerates us for this very end and purpose that we should bring forth fruit unto god by the newness of our life sanctification and righteousness are we know the fruits demanded of us by our heavenly father nor if we are the servants of god does that detract anything from our liberty nay if we wish to enjoy so great a blessing as christ our whole thoughts must be engaged in promoting god's glory on which account christ took us to himself if we pursue a different conduct we remain the slaves not only of the law but of sin and death for when we were in the flesh the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death but now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of life and not in the oldness of the letter for when we were in the flesh paul points out in a still more clear manner by the contrast how vainly the zealots of the law wish to keep believers subject to its power while the doctrine of the letter of the law reigns and is in force without the spirit of christ the wantonness of the flesh 
so far from being restrained, boils up with greater force. The kingdom of righteousness, therefore, it necessarily follows, is only established when Christ emancipates us from the law. Paul, at the same time, acquaints us with the works which it becomes us to practice when delivered from the power of the law. When man, therefore, is kept under the yoke of the law, he can procure nothing for himself but death, by his constant practice of sinning. If the slavery of the law produces sin only, emancipation, which is opposed to bondage, ought to lead to righteousness. If the former conducts to death, the latter must confer life upon believers. Let us, however, carefully weigh and consider the words of Paul. He says, We have been in the flesh, when he is desirous to describe our state during the time we were under the dominion of the law. Hence we understand that all those who are under the law have only their ears stunned with the external breath used in speaking of its prohibitions and requisitions, without any fruit or advantage arising from what they hear, since they are destitute of the internal spirit of God. They must therefore necessarily remain sunk in vice and frowardness until they discover a better remedy for the healing of their disease observe also the common scriptural expression to be in the flesh which is used instead of our being endowed with the alone gifts of nature while the peculiar grace is wanting which god condescends to bestow on his elect if moreover this whole state of life is spent and employed in vice it is undoubtedly evident that no part of our mind and inclination is by nature in a sound and faultless state and the freedom of our will is only possessed of the power of sending forth in every direction our depraved and abandoned affections as weapons of destruction the motions of sins which were by the law the law excited our depraved affections which exerted their power in every part of us for there was no limb that was not the slave of depraved passions and dispositions the work of the law if we do not possess the spirit our internal master is to inflame the workings of our hearts still more and make them boil over in inordinate desires paul compares here the law with the corrupt nature of man whose perverse character and lust rush forth with still greater fury in proportion to the number of the restraints and checks imposed upon him by righteousness he again adds while our carnal affections enjoyed the sovereignty under the law they brought forth fruits unto death and thus showed the law of itself to have been the cause of destruction the madness of those who desire so earnestly a death-producing slavery follows from our former statement but now ye are delivered from the law he continues the argument from the contrast. If the bond of the law rather excited us to sin than restrained the flesh from its own indulgences, we must necessarily be released from the power of the law, that we may cease from sinning. If we are therefore emancipated from the bondage of the law, that we may become the servants of God, all such as take a liberty from sinning from this cause, act with the greatest perverseness, and all teachers who say the reins are in this way thrown upon the necks of our lusts, make a false and unfounded assertion we are it is worthy of being observed then delivered from the law when god imbues us with his spirit absolves us from the rigorous demand and curse of the law and thus enables us to walk in his ways that being dead this part is confined to the reasoning of the apostle or rather hints at the manner by which we are liberated namely while the law is so far abrogated that we are not crushed with its intolerable burden nor does its inexecrable rigour bury us under its curse in newness of spirit paul opposes the spirit to the letter because before our will is formed by the holy spirit to the will of god we have nothing in the law save its external letter which bridles and restrains our outward action but by no means represses the fury of our lust he attributes indeed newness to the spirit because it comes in the place of the old man as the letter is called old which perishes by the regeneration of the spirit what shall we say then is the law sin god forbid nay i had not known sin but by the law for i had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for without the law sin was dead what shall we say then because it was said that we ought to be delivered from the law for the purpose of serving god in newness of the spirit the fault of impelling us as it were to sin seemed to be inherent in the law the apostle very justly engages in refuting this uncommon absurdity when he asks the question is the law sin or not he means does it so create sin that the blame and fault of the latter ought to be imputed to the former nay i had not known sin 
Sin, therefore, resides in us, not in the law, for its cause is the depraved desire of our flesh, for we attain a knowledge of it from our becoming acquainted with the righteousness declared to us in the law. We must not understand the apostle as if he meant there were no distinction between right and wrong without the law, but that we are either too dull to perceive our own depravity, or are rendered entirely stupid while we flatter ourselves in the indulgence of our inordinate desires. The statement of Paul, I had not known lust, is a declaration of the former sentence, in which he proves the ignorance of sin, whose character and nature he is examining, which consists in not perceiving its own lust. He intentionally dwells on one kind of sin, in which hypocrisy chiefly reigns, and supine indulgence and security are always connected with this vice. For mankind are never so deprived of understanding as not to make a distinction between different external actions. Nay, they are compelled to condemn wicked counsels and enterprises of vice, while they feel themselves under the necessity of bestowing due praise upon rectitude of heart and mind. But the vice of lust is more secret and deeply hidden, so that no account can be taken of it while men judge from their own feelings." nor does paul boast of his freedom from lust but he so indulged his own inclinations as not to consider the vice of inordinate desire lurking in his heart for though he was deceived for a time when he did not believe righteousness to be prevented by lust and covetousness yet he at last understood himself to be a sinner on finding concupiscence from which no human being is free to be prohibited by the law augustine says paul included the whole law in the word covetousness this, if properly understood, is true, for when Moses shows the actions we must avoid, if we are desirous not to injure our neighbour, he subjoins the commandment against covetousness, which must be referred to all these duties. The lawgiver undoubtedly, in the preceding commandments, condemned all depraved affections conceived in our minds, but there is a great difference between the deliberate willful desire of the heart and the appetites by which we are provoked and moved. God, therefore, in the tenth commandment, demands from us such strictness of integrity that no vicious desire ought to solicit us to evil, even though we should not give our consent. This consideration induced me to observe that Paul carries his view of this subject farther than the common understanding of mankind goes. Political laws, indeed, cry out that they inflict punishments on plots and counsels, not merely on events. Philosophers also, with still greater accuracy, place both vices and virtues in the mind. But God, by this precept, penetrates even to our very concupiscence, which is more concealed than the will and inclination, and on this account not considered to be a vice. Not only did it secure the pardon of philosophers, but the Roman Catholics contend that it is not sin in the regenerate, but Paul says he detected his guilt from this latent disease, and it hence follows that no excuse can be offered for any of those who are under the influence of covetousness, nor can they expect a pardon of their offence from any but God. A distinction in the meantime must be observed between depraved lusts which secure the consent of the will, and covetousness that provokes and affects the heart and inclination in such a manner as to stop in the midst of its persuading and exciting to action but sin taking occasion by. All evil, therefore, arises from sin and the corruption of the flesh. The occasion exists only in the law. And, though the apostle may appear merely to speak of that excitement by which our covetousness is incited by the law to boil up into greater madness, yet I chiefly refer it to knowledge, as if he had said, The law detected in me all my concupiscence, which appeared, when concealed, not to exist. I do not, however, deny the flesh to be more keenly stimulated by the law to concupiscence, and in this way also carnal desire is made manifest to the light, which might happen to Paul. But it appears to be more agreeable to the context to understand the passage of the manifestation of sin, since Paul immediately adds, for without the law sin is dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came sin revived and I died and the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Without the law, sin was dead. Paul very clearly points out the sense of the former passage, for the expression he uses here implies that the knowledge of sin was buried without the law. This is a general opinion, to which he adds his own example. 
i am surprised to find interpreters translating the tense in the preterimperfect as if paul was speaking of himself though it was very evident that he commences with a universal proposition and afterwards explains it by his own example for i was alive without the law once paul intimates that there was a time when sin was dead to himself or with respect to his view of his own character we must not understand from this that the apostle lived at any time without the law but he appeared to live from the absence of the law and being inflated by the confidence of his own righteousness arrogated life to himself when at the same time he was dead the sentence will appear clearer by resolving it in the following manner at one period when i was without the law i was alive i term this word emphatic because he claimed life for himself by imagining that he was righteous his meaning is when laying aside all thought of the law i committed sin my transgression of the law was so lulled to sleep that it appeared almost dead in consequence of not observing its operations and effect on the other hand because i did not consider myself a sinner i rested in my own character and conceived that life had taken up its abode in me for the death of sin is a man's life and on the other hand the life of sin is death but he proposes the question during which period he confidently claimed life for himself through ignorance or as he terms it absence of the law for he was undoubtedly instructed from his childhood in the doctrine of the law but it was the theology of the letter which does not humble its disciples for as paul says two corinthians three fourteen a veil was interposed to prevent the jews from seeing the light of life in the law so he himself also in some degree when he wanted the spirit of christ had his eyes veiled and rested satisfied with the external mask of righteousness he therefore says he was without the law because though he saw it with his eyes he was not affected with a serious sense of the judgment of the lord the eyes of hypocrites are so covered with a veil that they do not see the extent of the precept which prohibits us from coveting but when the commandment came he speaks of the commandment coming when it began to be truly understood for it then called forth a sin as it were from the dead and disclosed to paul the fountain of wickedness issuing from the inmost recesses of his heart and at the same time killing him paul we should never forget is here speaking of the intoxicating confidence in which hypocrites rest when they flatter themselves and wink at their own vices i found to be two things are here stated that the commandment shows us the way of life in the righteousness of god and was given that we might by observing the law of god obtain everlasting life if not prevented by our own wickedness but since none of us obey the law but rather rush headlong with all our powers and combined exertions to follow that very course of life from which we are recalled by its precepts it necessarily brings only death and this distinction must be made between the nature of the law and our vice the deadly wound therefore inflicted upon us by the law is evidently accidental as if an incurable disease should be increased in violence by a salutary remedy i acknowledge the accident is called inseparable from the law on which account it is called two corinthians three seven the administration of death when compared with the gospel but we ought to have it fixed in our minds that the law does not injure us by our own nature but our corruption excites and calls forth the denunciation of its curse deceived me the whole life of man it must be granted wanders from rectitude and is full of errors provided the will of god should be concealed from us and no part of the doctrine of divine truth shine forth for our instruction nay we cannot escape error until the way of right living is pointed out to us by the law paul justly says we are deceived when sin is detected by the law because we then begin at last to be sensible of our error when the lord has brought conviction to the mind by the loud voice of conscience we are said to be deceived because the law opens our understanding and makes us clearly acquainted with our great departure from a proper course of life and sinners who went on securely before become wearied and displeased with themselves since they know assuredly when the foul and squalid nature and character of sin have been placed before them in the glass of the law that their mad career of evil and unhallowed conduct was hurrying them on to the yawning jaws of death he again impresses upon his readers the word occasion with a view to convince us that the law does not bring forth death of itself but from some other adventitious cause wherefore the law is holy 
Paul uses the two words law and commandment for the purpose of giving force and energy, and he means the law and every precept it enjoins is holy, and on this account must be reverenced with the greatest honour, just, and therefore no unrighteousness must be laid to its charge, good, and therefore pure, and free from every vice and every stain. He thus defends the law from every charge and accusation brought against it, so that none dare attack the commandment and its requisitions as containing any principle contrary to goodness, to righteousness, and to holiness. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Was then that which is good he has vindicated the law in his former remarks from all calumnies in such a manner that it continues doubtful whether it be the real cause of death nay the human mind is greatly perplexed by considering how it is consistent for us to state that nothing but destruction arises from the striking and singular favour of god paul in answering this objection denies death to have been caused by the law though sin taking occasion by the commandment introduced death this answer contradicts not though it may appear to do so his former observation that he had found the commandment which was ordained to life to be unto death paul in the former passage meant that our depravity by abusing the law was the cause of our destruction in direct opposition to the nature of the commandment and in this verse he denies the law to be the material cause of death which ought not to be laid to the charge of commandments that are just and good the apostle speaks more fully of the law 2 Corinthians 3.7, and calls it the ministration of death, as frequently occurs in controversy, for he is not there considering the nature of the law, but the false opinion of his adversaries. Nay, sin, etc. I pass over the remarks of others, and adopt this reading in the following sense. Sin, before its detection by the law, is in some measure justified, but on being revealed by occasion of the law is denominated sin, and its wickedness, if i may be allowed the expression sinfulness then appears greater because it perverts and changes the goodness of the law to our destruction for sin must be of a very destructive character which makes the demands of the law that are in their own nature in every respect useful and beneficial to become injurious the law must detect the atrocity of sin for this would never have been acknowledged had it not burst forth with vast and dreadful enormity of excess that spreads ruin and devastation in all directions with greater violence by changing the life which the law is calculated to bestow into all the horrors and agonies of death in this case therefore all ground for excuse is completely removed for we know that the law is spiritual but i am carnal sold under sin for that which i do i allow not for what i would that i do not but what i hate that i do if then i do that which i would not i consent unto the law that it is good now then it is no more i that do it but sin that dwelleth in me for we know that the law he now begins to institute a more near comparison between the law and human nature that it may be understood more clearly whence vice which makes us subject to death springs he then proposes the example of a regenerate man and in this case the law of the lord so contends with the remains of the flesh that the spirit willingly yields it obedience but in the beginning as we have said he proposes a plain and simple comparison between nature and the law since there is no greater disagreement in anything pertaining to man than between the flesh and spirit the law is spiritual man carnal what agreement then has the nature of man with the law the same that light has with darkness Paul, by calling the law spiritual, not only means that it requires the more intellectual affections of the heart, according to some commentators, but by way of antithesis opposes it to the word carnal. The former class of interpreters explain the law is spiritual in the following manner. It not only binds the feet and hands with respect to external works, but the affections of the heart are enjoined to obey it and the sincere fear of god is exacted by its requisitions the antithesis let it be remembered is still kept up between the flesh and spirit the context also will make it sufficiently plain that it has in some measure been before proved that the flesh includes whatever men bring with them from the womb flesh means the character which man has from his birth and while he retains his natural disposition because as vice clings to all his thoughts inclinations and actions so grossness and earthliness distinguish all his wisdom and all the breathings of his soul 
the spirit on the contrary is called the renewing of our corrupt nature by which the fountain of all love transforms us into his own image this manner of speaking is adopted because the gift of the spirit is that newness of life which is formed anew in us the perfection of the doctrine of the law is therefore opposed to the depraved nature of man and this passage means the law requires a certain heavenly and angelic righteousness wherein no spot appears and nothing is required to add to its cleanness but i a carnal man have no power but what consists in manifesting opposition to its commands it is a waste of time to refute the opinion of origen which was formerly approved by many he says the law is called spiritual by paul because the scriptures are not to be understood in a literal sense what has this to do with the subject in hand sold under sin this sentence shows the power of the flesh when left to itself for man by nature is no less a slave to sin than purchased slaves who are abused by their masters according to their will in the same manner as oxen and asses thus we are so entirely driven about by the authority and power of sin that our whole mind our whole heart and all our actions are inclined to sin i always accept restraint for we sin of our own choice since it would not be sin if it was not voluntary but we are so much devoted to sin that of our own accord we can do nothing else than commit iniquity because we are hurried off by the wickedness which reigns in us this similitude therefore does not apply as it is called a forced restraint but voluntary obedience to which we are devoted by an innate bondage for that which i do i allow not paul now descends to a more particular example of a man already regenerate in which the two objects aimed at by him more distinctly appear namely the great difference between the law of god and the nature of man and how impossible it is for the law to produce death of its own accord by its own power for since carnal man rushes into the lust of sinning with the whole bent and inclination of his soul he seems to sin with as free a choice as if he enjoyed the power of laying a restraint upon his own conduct the very destructive opinion has generally been everywhere adopted that man by his own natural powers can choose both good and evil without the assistance of divine grace but while the will of a believer is driven on to good by the spirit of god the depravity of nature is clearly manifested by the obstinacy with which it resists and opposes virtue a regenerate man therefore supplies the most appropriate example by which the great disagreement of our nature with the righteousness of the law may be known the impossibility of the law producing death by itself is thus more properly proved than by the mere consideration of human nature for the law because it produces death alone in a man entirely carnal is more easily accused in that respect since it is doubtful whence vice may arise it is evident by producing salutary fruits in a regenerate man that the flesh only opposes the quickening power of the law so far is it from causing death by its natural tendency for the purpose of understanding the whole of this controversy with more certainty and fidelity it is worthy of remark that the warfare mentioned by the apostle does not exist in man until he has been sanctified by the spirit of god for man left to his own nature is entirely hurried on to lusts without any opposition for though the wicked are pricked by the stings of conscience and are unable so to soothe themselves in their vices as not to feel some taste of bitterness yet you cannot hence infer that they either hate evil or love good god only permits them to endure such torments that he may in some measure convince them of his judgment but does not affect them with a love of righteousness or a hatred of sin the great difference between the believers and unbelievers is that the latter are never so blinded and hardened in their minds by sin as not to condemn if they are accused the perpetration of crimes by the proper judgment of their own conscience for understanding is evidently not extinguished in them but they can discern between vice and virtue sometimes also they are so struck with horror on account of a sense of their own evil conduct as to exhibit an appearance of condemnation even in this life they are however pleased with sin in their whole hearts and therefore devote themselves to it without any real opposition on the part of their affections to iniquity and vice for the stings of conscience with which they are pricked spring rather from the opposite judgment than the contrary affection of the will on the other hand the pious in whom the regeneration of god has commenced are so divided in their feelings as to breathe after god with the chief desire of their heart to desire heavenly righteousness and hate sin but are again drawn back to earth by the remains of their flesh in the midst of this state of distraction they violently oppose their own nature and feel themselves to be opposed by its power nor do they condemn their sins 
compelled only by the judgment of reason but detest them with a serious affection of the heart and are displeased with their conduct in the commission of iniquity this is the christian warfare and struggle mentioned by paul galatians five seventeen between the flesh and the spirit it has been therefore justly said that carnal man rushes upon sin with the consent and agreement of his whole soul and a state of separation from vice immediately then first commences when he is called by god and sanctified by his spirit for regeneration begins only in this life the remains of flesh that continue always accompany their corrupt affections and thus excite a warfare against the spirit the unskilful and inexperienced who do not consider the nature of the question which the apostle is engaged in examining or what plan of treating this subject is adopted by him consider human nature alone to be here depicted such indeed is the description of the disposition and inclination of man given by philosophers but the philosophy of scripture is much more profound for it sees nothing but perverseness of character to have remained in the heart of man since adam was deprived of the image of god the sophists also where they want to define free will or to estimate the power of human nature quote this passage but paul does not as already stated here propose the simple nature of man but describes in his own person the extent and nature of the infirmity of believers augustine was for some time involved in this common error but after a more close examination of this part of scripture he not only retracted his former erroneous doctrine but in his first book to boniface adduced many powerful reasons to prove that it could only be explained as relating to the regenerate we also will endeavour to make our readers plainly acknowledge this to be the sense of the apostle i allow not he means that he does not acknowledge the works committed in consequence of the infirmity of the flesh to be his own since he holds them in abhorrence and detestation erasmus therefore translated it tolerably well by approve but to prevent all ambiguity i have rendered the word understand it hence follows that the doctrine of the law so agrees with right judgment that believers reject its transgression as something brutish and beneath the character of a reasonable being because paul seems to acknowledge that his doctrine differs from the command of the law many commentators have been deceived and supposed him to have taken the character of another person hence arose the common error that paul described in this entire chapter the inclination and disposition of the unregenerate man paul by the transgression of the law means all the falls of the pious which neither drive out the fear of god nor the desire of pursuing a course of right conduct he says therefore that he does not perform all the requisitions of the law because he does not obey it in all its parts but in some measure faints in his efforts for what i would that do i not we must not understand this passage as if paul was constantly unable to fulfil any goodness but he only complains of his inability to perform his desire of pursuing goodness with due cheerfulness because he is in some measure held in bonds he fails also when his will is by no means inclined to act improperly because he halts in consequence of the weakness of the flesh the pious heart does not perform the good it desires since a proper activity does not urge on the performance of a requisite duty it does the evil which is opposed to its will because though eager and desirous to stand it falls or at least wavers and is inconstant we must however refer desires and aversions of it to the spirit which ought to hold the chief place in the affections of the faithful the flesh also has its own will but paul calls the will what he desired with the principal affection of the heart and everything contending with this desire is denominated contrary to his will we may hence deduce our former conclusion that paul is here discoursing of the faithful in whom some grace of the spirit flourishes to illustrate the consent of a sound mind with the righteousness of the law because the hatred of sin does not belong to the flesh if then i do that which i would not i consent to the law my heart while it acquiesces in the law and is delighted with its righteousness which certainly takes place where the believer hates transgression and sin feels and confesses the goodness of the law in this case so that we may be sufficiently convinced even by the teaching of experience that no evil is to be imputed to the law nay it would be the cause of salvation to men if it fell upon right and pure hearts this consent to the law is not to be taken in the sense used by unbelievers when they say i behold and approve of a better line of conduct but pursue a worse and i will follow plans calculated to injure me and avoid what i believe to be useful for they act by constraint since they subscribe to the righteousness of god for which they are otherwise altogether alienated but the pious consents also with a serious and very ready desire of his heart because he would choose a speedy departure to heaven in preference to anything else 
Now then, it is no more I that do it. It is not the importunate entreaty of a person excusing himself, as if he was without fault, which is the conduct of many triflers who consider they produce a just defence for covering their transgressions and crimes, by casting all the blame upon the flesh, but a testimony afforded to the very striking disagreement between spiritual affection and the flesh of a believer. For they are hurried away by so great a fervour of the spirit to obey God, that they deny their own flesh." This passage clearly proves Paul is disputing concerning none but the pious, who are now regenerated. For man, while he continues like himself, whatever his character may be, is justly considered to be vicious. But Paul asserts he is not wholly engaged in sin, nay, he exempts himself from its bondage, as if he had said sin resides only in some part of his soul, while he struggles with the serious affection of his heart, and aspires after God's righteousness and proves in reality that he carries the law of God inscribed in his inmost feelings and desires. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know... Paul says no good dwells in him with respect to his nature. In me means the same as if he had said what proceeds from me. In the beginning of this paragraph he condemns himself as wholly sunk in depravity when he confesses that no good dwells in him. He afterwards corrects himself lest he should dishonour the grace of God which also dwelt within him but was no part of his flesh. And in this passage he again confirms the interpretation which considers him not to be speaking of mankind in general but only of believers who are divided in their own feelings, reasonings, and views, on account of the remains of the flesh and the grace of the spirit. For why does he correct himself if some part is not free from vice, and therefore not carnal? Under the name flesh he comprehends all the powers of human nature, and everything complete and entire in man, except the sanctification of the spirit. The word spirit, usually opposed to the flesh, signifies that part of the soul which the Spirit of God has purified from evil, and so transformed that the image of God shines forth in the affections, desires, and faculties of the mind. Both these names, therefore, flesh and spirit, suit the soul, but one relates to that part which is regenerated, and the other to the natural affections. To will is present with me. He does not mean that he has nothing but an ineffectual valiety and desire, but he asserts the efficacy of the work does not correspond to the will, because the flesh hinders him from exactly performing what he is engaged in executing. What follows, to do the evil which he would not, must also be taken in the same sense, because the faithful are not only hindered from running speedily by their own flesh, but it also opposes many obstacles against which they stumble, and they do not therefore perform their duty, because they do not engage in it with becoming alacrity. The will, therefore, here mentioned, is the readiness of faith, while the Holy Spirit forms the pious to be prepared, and zealous in employing their time to perform obedience to God. But Paul, because his power is unequal to the task, asserts he does not find what he was wishing to attain, the accomplishment of his good desires. The following confession relates to the same subject that he does not perform the good which he desired, but rather the evil contrary to his will. Because, indeed, believers, though animated with a proper spirit, consider, from a consciousness of their own infirmity, none of their works to be free from blame. For since Paul does not, in this passage, treat of a few faults of the pious, but points out the whole course and tenor of their lives in general, we infer their best works to be always polluted by some stains of vice, so that no reward can be expected unless bestowed by the pardoning mercy of God. He at last repeats that he is a faithful witness, and subscribes to the righteousness of the law, and this view of the commandments more fully influences his life and conversation in proportion to the heavenly light which is bestowed by the Spirit. Hence it follows, if the integrity of our nature were pure and perfect, that the law would not be productive of death, nor, of its own accord, opposed to a person of a sound mind who abhors evil. Since, however, this is not the case, health proceeds only from a heavenly physician. I find, then, a law, that, when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. I find, therefore, Paul, in this passage, imagines a fourfold law, the law of God, which alone is properly so denominated, because it is the rule of righteousness by which our life is justly and correctly formed. 
he joins to this the law of the mind meaning the inclination of the faithful soul to obey the divine law which is a certain conformity of our own character and conduct with god's law on the other hand he opposes to this the law of unrighteousness and by a certain allusion thus denominates the power which iniquity has not only in a man yet unregenerate but in the flesh of the regenerate for the edicts of tyrants however iniquitous and most regardless of justice are termed though improperly and by the abuse of language laws paul makes the law of the members or lust existing in the flesh correspond to the law of sin on account of the agreement which it has with iniquity with respect to the first part of the sentence because many commentators take the name law in its proper sense a preposition is understood and erasmus translates it by the law as if paul had said that under the guidance direction and power of the law he found vice to be innate and to exist from his very birth without understanding any preposition the sentence will be sufficiently clear while believers struggle to attain virtue they find in themselves a certain tyrannical law because a vicious propensity directly opposed to the law of god and resisting its demands is fixed and seated in their very marrow and bones for i delight in the law of god you here therefore see the divided state of the minds of believers from which the contest between the spirit and flesh arises elegantly termed by augustine the christian warfare and combat the law of god invites man to the rectitude of justice iniquity which is as it were the tyrannical law of satan impels to wickedness man thus distracted by various wills assumes now in some measure a twofold character but since the spirit ought to hold the dominion he determines and judges of himself chiefly from this part paul therefore says he is bound a captive by his flesh because it is still moved and affected by depraved lusts and this may be considered constraint with respect to spiritual desire which entirely resists its power but we ought diligently to observe the sense annexed to the inner man and the members for many have stumbled in consequence of not properly understanding these expressions the inner man therefore does not simply mean the soul but its spiritual part which is regenerated by god the word members points out the other remaining part for as the soul is the more excellent part of the man and the body the inferior so the spirit is superior to the flesh in this way therefore because the spirit holds the place of the soul in man when regenerated and the flesh or the corrupted and vitiated soul is seated in the body the former is termed the inner man and the latter the members the inner man is understood in a different sense 2 corinthians 4:16 but the circumstance of the present passage necessarily requires the interpretation which i have here given it is called inward by way of excellence because it possesses the heart and hidden affections while the appetites of the flesh wander in various directions and are as it were without the man or it is certainly the same as if any one should compare heaven with earth for paul intends by the word members in a contemptuous sense whatever appears in man with a view to show more clearly and fully that our secret renewal and regeneration avoid and are concealed from our senses unless so far as they are apprehended by faith since the law of the mind undoubtedly signifies well-regulated inclination there is an evident perversion of this passage if it be applied to the unregenerate for paul informs us that this class of the human race is devoid of well-ordered minds because the desires and passions of their souls are degenerated from reason o wretched man that i am who shall deliver me from the body of this death i thank god through jesus christ our lord so then with the mind i myself serve the law of god but with the flesh the law of sin a wretched man he concludes the dispute with an exclamation full of vehemence by which he teaches us that we must not only struggle with our flesh but deplore by continued groanings with ourselves and in the presence of god our own unhappiness he does not indeed ask by whom he is to be liberated as if in doubt like unbelievers who are ignorant of there being one deliverer alone but it is the language of one panting and almost fainting because he does not behold a present help sufficient to accomplish his rescue from sin on this account he used the word delivered to express the uncommon power of god necessary for effecting this deliverance he calls the body of death the mass of sin or the lump from which the whole man is formed except that in him those remains only continued by the bonds of which he was kept a captive i translate it with erasmus this body though the pronoun agrees well with death but nearly in the same sense for paul wished to teach the following doctrine that the eyes of the sons of god were opened to discern with wisdom from the law of infinite holiness the corruption of our nature and the death which it occasions but the term body means the same with the outward man and members 
because Paul observes that man's departure from the law of his creation was the origin of vice, and he thus became in all his feelings, affections, and desires, fleshly and earthly. For although man still surpasses brute animals, he is deprived of true excellence. What remains is full of numberless corruptions, and his soul is so far degenerated that it may justly be said to have passed into the body. Thus God in Moses, Genesis 6, 3, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he also is flesh where he deprives the human race of spiritual excellence, and dishonours the descendants of Adam by comparing them with the beasts. This passage of Paul is strikingly calculated to bring down and destroy all the glory of the flesh, for it shows that all, even the most perfect, while they dwell in the flesh, are subject to misery because they are liable to death. Nay, when they examine themselves with the greatest care, they see nothing in their nature except misery. To prevent their indulging slothfulness, Paul rouses them by his own example to anxious groans and sighs, and orders them, during their sojourning on earth, to desire death as the only remedy on which he relied for terminating his own evil, and this is indeed the proper and legitimate end and design for their desiring death. For despair often drives the wicked to form the same wish, but they have a foolish longing for death, rather from a disgust of the present life than weariness on account of their iniquity. Besides this, believers, though they aim at the proper mark, are not hurried on to desire death with an unbridled impulse, but submit themselves to the will of God, to whom we ought to devote our life and death. On this account they do not rage with indignation against God, but cast, with prayer and supplication, their anxieties and perplexities into his bosom, for they do not so settle down in the thought of their misery as not to temper their grief with joy from the remembrance of the grace which they have received. The following sentence confirms this view of the passage. I thank. Paul immediately subjoined this thanksgiving, that none might suppose he obstinately railed against God in his complaint, for we know how ready we are to fall into murmuring and impatience even in grief which we justly deserve. While Paul therefore laments his state and groans for an issue to his misery, yet he confesses at the same time that he rests in the grace of God. For the saints, while they examine their defects, ought never to forget what they have already received from God, the thoughts of their being so received under the protection of God that they can never perish, and the conviction of their enjoying the first fruits of the Spirit, which give them a certain and sure hope of an everlasting inheritance, are sufficient to check all impatience and to cherish tranquillity of mind. And though they do not yet enjoy the promised glory of heaven, yet, content with the measure of grace already attained, they never want a theme for joy and gladness. I myself serve. This short epilogue teaches that the faithful never reach the goal of righteousness during their abode in the flesh, but continue in their course until they are stripped of their body. He again calls the mind, not that rational part of the soul, so celebrated by philosophers, but that part which is illuminated by the Spirit of God for the purpose of making advances in true wisdom and regulating the will. For Paul, when he describes the regeneration, joins the understanding with the earnest and serious desire of the heart after holiness. Paul, by his statement that he had not attained perfect righteousness, acknowledges his devotedness to God to be polluted with much impurity, while in this world he is softly and slowly creeping on to endless glory. This striking passage affords a very clear refutation of the very ruinous doctrine of perfect purity maintained by the sect called Cathari. Some factious spirits are again endeavouring to renew in our times this ancient heresy. End of section 10